This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare. The Battle of Ideas. <laughs> the Battle of Ideas, sorry. Um, <laughs> that was <laughs> that, that, that viral clip from UCT that uh, everybody might remember. Science must fall. Science must be decolonized. Joining me <laughs> on the other side is uh, Dr. Bruce Gilly from Portland State University, uh, Doctor, you are, as I understand it, a professor of political science. Is that correct? Yep, that's it. <laughs> that clip. <laughs> Did have you seen it before? Well, I've seen versions of it uh, in many places, and I gotta say, I, I I'm kind of flattered. You know, Western knowledge is totalizing. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, what a nice thing to say. You know, because because. Wow, my, my knowledge that was produced by me is totalizing. Means yours is partial and fragmentary and like half-assed. Thank you. I I feel so much better. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> the most woke people are the biggest white supremacists because everything they say is basically white supremacy. It's like the very arguments about the white man is special and powerful and totalizing and his ways are uniquely powerful and create and shape everything and the white man speaks and the rest of the world trembles is that the woke people saying that or is that the white supremacists saying that i i'm i can't quite remember actually for my money it's the same thing well i'm a uh, political scientist and i focus on comparative politics and international development um i used to focus mainly on Asia. Uh, I was a China specialist. I lived in colonial Hong Kong for uh, five years and then post-colonial Hong Kong for another five years um, when I was a journalist. And then I went back and got my PhD and became an academic um, and basically worked in kind of standard foreign politics issues. I taught African politics. I taught Asian politics. I mm. wrote wrote things about different issues. And then... Um, you know, I I actually should have been famous much earlier. I'm kind of, you know, I feel jilted because mm. um, my first outrage 
uh, somehow didn't register. And that was when I wrote an article where I said Chinua Akebe uh, was actually not anti-colonial at all and um, published that in the journal African Affairs and was kind of expecting to become a pariah. But uh, for some mm. reason, nothing happened. And it wasn't until I then wrote another article called The Case for Colonialism. I guess I should have said something like Chinua Akebe's Case for Colonialism or the <laughs> or the marginalized people of color case for colonialism and nobody would have noticed. Um, but I just called it the case for colonialism and that was apparently not acceptable. I am very thankful for colonialism because I'm drinking a bourbon. <laughs> and when you uh, sat in that uh, UCT classroom and uh, pushed the light switch, uh, the lights actually came on so that that woman <laughs> could give her harangue. Uh, and that it's my first my understanding that science is responsible for that mm. so perhaps she would have prepped given her talk in the dark she would have been happier because you know uh, we don't want western modernity to predict that when you turn the light switch on it'll become illuminated in the room mm, mm. and of course that's also a besides the fact that she had an ipad in front of her <laughs> well it's sad right i mean we can joke about it Jeremy, yes. but, but i mean at the end of the day this is a, this is basically a tragic uh, train wreck of social and racial identity uh, that some of these groups have defined themselves as essentially pre-enlightenment cavemen um, and somehow think that that's some authentic identity that is good for their for their children uh, and will lead them to have more flourishing and happy lives. I mean, that's it's it's a human rights issue for my money yeah. that uh, many of these identities have uh, positioned themselves as enemies of modernity. I mean, what could be more cruel to your children and your society than to position your identity as anti-modern? What is colonialism? So actually, the word, the, the word actually was from the Romans, right? And it, it actually was what we would now call settler, settler colonial. I mean, where, where you sent a bunch of your people, your merry band of settlers, and they, they created a colony, like an offshoot of the home country. But um, we then, um, you know, by the, by the 19th century, uh, Western imperialism was spreading to places where most people you know, Westerners wouldn't live, West Africa being, you know, one of them, um, and, and East Africa to some extent. You know, they could live in the Cape, but, you know, not not in the Central. So colonialism actually became not so much about spreading one's uh, population, but spreading one's governance system. So it's it, it essentially, in its modern term, means when uh, country A uh, extends its governance to country B, and, um, and I think what's important about this is, you know, the assumption is that this happens by force, right? So that's why when we see colonialism, people say, well, that, that can't be a good idea. That's not fair. Mm. Um, and I think the question of, you know, the, the mixture of force and legitimacy and cooperation is to me an open question. And, and actually, I think most of the cases we've looked at uh, historically, you know, the, the, the dirty little secret is it was almost always through a significant degree of cooperation and legitimacy and what we would call pull from the local societies who recognized all too well that they would be better off with some form of uh, institutionalized connection to a wealthy, liberal and well-governed state. It's funny you say that because that's not what you would uh, read in the media or just about any history book. I mean, uh, colonialism equals evil. 
Yeah, so so there's uh, you know essentially 50 years of garbage have been produced by the academy on colonialism, and I hate to put it that starkly because there there has been a lot of great stuff, um, and I you know I have I've collected it in one place in a bibliography I publish online, uh, but it's it's maybe 10 percent or five percent of what's been done on colonialism. Most of it has essentially been a form of uh, of uh, social activism disguised as scholarship. Mm. Uh, Every single interaction has been recast as some form of anti-colonial resistance and rebellion. Uh, you know, uh, tribal chiefs who were trying to subjugate their rival, you know, rivals uh, are now kind of backcast as proto-nationalists. Yeah. You know, so so th so this whole kind of colonialism has become a bad word because because the scholarship that surrounds it is terrible. Everything about the past is bad if it has anything to do with what I suspect is white people because I don't hear the same arguments being leveled at, I don't know, Asia or the Middle East, or am I wrong? No, you're right. Uh, I mean, to, to, to some extent, I mean, the, uh, you know, the uh, people of Tibet uh, uh, are flipping angry at the Chinese and there's no white man there. So, so there's lots of cases where <laughs> Where uh, non-white people are, are, there's no white people, but there's but there's a lot of local resentments. But it, but it never really scales up to a kind of global narrative about mm. the evils of one particular civilization. And and you know, in some ways, it's just uh, <laughs> again, I come back to the great. I I love it when the global conversation is all about the United States and Western yeah. civilization. You know, because it's just more evident. It's just like more 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 fuel for the white supremacists you know i mean if, if if you were trying to support white supremacy you would be funding you know the black studies movement yeah. and the woke studies and the decolonize the curriculum because all it does is direct attention almost almost obsessively to mm. the west and the western liberal tradition and yes it puts it under a great deal of attack but on the other hand it makes it the center of attention. And um, I mean, white supremacists would love that. I mean, that's that's the whole joke here is, you know, people's histories have been robbed from them and their agency and their own histories robbed from them in the name of liberation. Very few countries have survived without being uh, colonized. I'm thinking Saudi Arabia might be one. Yeah, uh, Ethiopia, maybe, maybe Thailand, uh, you know, Th Thailand kind of was, was left alone intentionally. Yeah, maybe Japan. Um, and, and then one, one could look at countries that, you know, had a colonial relationship, but, but threw it off very early before the sort of modern colonial period of, eight, you know, 1824 onwards. So Haiti is is a great example of that where, you know, the, 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 the revolution against the French was in 1815 or whatever you know, because of the French Revolution, that was mm. one of the consequences. So maybe uh, not so much not colonized, but but being freed from the evils of colonialism early on and then yeah. creating uh, 200 years of misery for the Western Hemisphere ever since, including uh, two children who are now about to be uh, the children of a Supreme Court justice here in the U.S., um, you know, <laughs> lucky for them, but, but complete disaster. Mm. Um, and if one compares that to, say, the Bahamas, um, would you rather have uh, grown up under free, liberated Haiti or as a slave of British imperialism in the Bahamas? Well, I can tell you um, the evidence is uh, very clear from the people who desperately migrated from Haiti to the Bahamas yeah. uh, if, if they couldn't live in the segregated south of the U.S., which was their first choice, of course. Um, so, 
yeah, uh, colonialism has spread and been the norm in human history because that's that's been better for human life because slavery ended because of colonialism. I mean, uh, British imperial expansion in particular from the 1820s onward in the sort of second phase of European imperialism uh, was premised in many cases at the abolition of slavery and, and massive resources were devoted by the British as part of their imperial expansion mm. to ending the slave trade. Indeed, the, the reason they ended up in control of so many places in East Africa um, and in uh, West Africa and, uh, you know, even in the, in the Caribbean was because they were they were devoting resources to the abolition of first the, the trade in slaves and then the purchase of slaves and ultimately it's you know allowing each place to then abolish slavery um, as developmental conditions made that you know possible in within the colonies themselves so uh, yeah yeah if there had not been colonialism slavery would not have ended as quickly as it did well just to clarify slavery still exists particularly in northern Africa Right. Well, you know, an, an, another reason why more more formalized engagement with mm. more stable, liberal and well-governed political systems would be a benefit to the least advantaged. Um, and of course, this is the thing that is that is that, you know, the the, the thing about colonialism is it, is it was was experienced differently depending on whether you were an upper class elite yeah. or a poor marginalized person and the people who hated it were the upper class elites um, in part because they got jilted from their thrones and they were not allowed to you know take the daughters of the uh, people in their areas anymore and put them in their house um, and, and also because um, in a, just a kind of cultural way it, it was a loss of, of dignity I mean you know the the Indians in particular the upper caste Indians you know have never recovered from the discovery that the poor people in India actually preferred the British to the Maharajas. Um, yeah. Which is why India, why, why, why India is such a steady producer of anti-colonial crackpots in Western universities, because they're all upper caste Indians who really never got over the fact that the East India Company was preferred <laughs> to their caste rule. Um, and so, you know, co colonialism spread because um, poor people in particular were all too happy to work for uh, either in uh, government or work for in police systems or um, to simply work for companies that came with colonial rule. And that's how it spread. Why is this particular conversation so important? Because it is the central pivot point around which the attack on contemporary liberal society is being based. And so this de decolonize, right, what that has become. I mean, that, that's no longer, you know, send the Colonel Blimp home to his pension in the south of England. Um, decolonize now means uh, eliminate liberal institutions and the procedural fairness and the guarantees of freedom that liberal institutions brought. Why? Because this is a power grab. Um, elites in every society would love to not have the hoi polloi mm -hmm. telling them what they can and cannot do. And the easiest way to make that power grab is to say, oh, this this liberal society we have, these democratic institutions, these human rights, this judiciary, uh, it, it's it's a plot of the white man to rob you of your identity. Well, that's a that's a very powerful thing to say. And so whatever form you're seeing this decolonized word being used, it's essentially a power grab. And it's a it's a noxious power grab that makes use of a distorted history 
to try and advance what is, in a sense, a, a, an authoritarian or totalitarian agenda. So, yeah, the debate on colonialism is important because if you demobilize that debate, if you if you if you tell people actually, you know, the only people who are who are engaging in a bad form of colonialism are you power grabbers here who want us to, you know, give up on Pythagoras. Um, if you can make that argument and make and make a distinction between this noxious colonialism of contemporary identity politics and what is objectively was a, a liberal and positive colonialism for the most part of European expansion, then then you you rob them of their ammunition because because the, the colonial colonialism bad ammunition is what they use to shoot down contemporary liberal society. Why do you think it's happening though? Why is there this attempted attack to destroy um, colonial history? Well, because um, the cultural production in Western society begins in schools and universities and then seeps out from there into the media and book publishers and journalists. And, you know, the, 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 these kind of Marxists understood that, you know, it's not the means of economic production we need to seize. It's the means of cultural production we need to seize. And we're going to do it by being very deliberate and we're going to get into the schools and into the universities and we're going to get into the media and we're going to get into the publishing industry and we're going to make sure there's only one understanding of this and once we've done that right everything else is easy because you know you know like i say something as 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 insignificant as george floyd in minneapolis which was a a insignificant event an insignificant event by any objective measure right, right. basically a, a bad interaction in a place where there's huge problems of criminality, George Floyd being a poster child for the problems in the community he came from. Somehow this gets <laughs> kind of spun up into this, this global assault on people of color, right? So how does that happen? Well, because these people have been primed, right? This, this generation, not everyone, but uh, a significant proportion of the generation who started going to university in the 60s and 70s when this cultural seizure of power began, this Marxist seizure of cultural production began, by now, you know, this is a significant portion of the population who's been educated in this way. They have no other way of thinking about the past except a sorry litany of the abuses and atrocities of liberal society. So when something like George Floyd happens, it's so easy to just push the button and say yeah. outrage and, and, and we're off to the races. And it became a global thing very quickly here in South Africa, even. Right. And, and you know, really, you know, the, the, the poor people of Pretoria really need to worry about some drug addled felon in Minneapolis. That, that's like an important thing to your to your quality of life and the, and the mm. bread and butter issues. I mean, just think how sad that is, right? To, to, to that 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 a whole generation of people have become so programmed, like they're in a in a nasty cult in Guyana, <laughs> to to just uh, be be so easily mobilized by mm. a few kind of dog whistles from the BLM movement. Um, I mean, again, it's going to take a generation of deprogramming to to get us back to a point where liberal society is safe again. If, if South Africa can actually start to have a productive encounter with its 
not just British colonial past, but with, with its post-colonial past under mm. apartheid and understand, you know, what was bequeathed in a positive sense um, and understand that what was bequeathed in a positive sense far, far outweighs what, what was bequeathed in a negative sense, you know, maybe there's hope for South Africa. Maybe it's not just sliding into the classic African tailspin. Um, and so there was a pause. And then, of course, yeah. the reaction came and it was quite the opposite message. The message was, we are so far in the, in the other direction. Like we're already 100 miles down the road. Mm. Um, and of course, I became involved or, or known in that because the, the public protector's report uh, on that uh, cited the backlash against my article, The Case for Colonialism, as evidence that one shouldn't talk about the case for colonialism. In other words, because illiberal mobs had attacked my article, therefore, my article must have been suitably attacked because the public prosecutor was essentially saying, I'm an illiberal mob too, which he essentially was. It's circular. And yeah, it was kind of like, you know, because crazy people said this was not acceptable, therefore it was probably not acceptable. I mean, the, 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 anyways, she, she never got high points for logic, that, that woman. Um, and, and, and then, you know, I think people looked at that situation and the, the, out, the, the, the result of that, that report and, you know, this is like one of those those marks where people said, you know, you, you can look at foreign reserves and growth and employment. But, you know, mm. ultimately, this all turns on the 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 identity and the, the the public understanding of South Africa's past. And if this is the public understanding of the past, because you can read a report and says, you know, this was harmful to South Africans because of the oppression and racism and terrible legacies of apartheid and colonialism. You know, if that's your understanding of your past, who, who's going to defend liberal institutions in South Africa? If they are tainted with horrible racism, then the only logical thing to do would be to tear them down, ransack the country, yeah. uh, build up some new Afrocentric centers of knowledge and some Afrocentric form of governance uh, I don't know, what is this, Idi Amin? Is this, uh, you know, Sese Mobutu? I mean, who is this coming? Um, and, uh, and and this was a, you know, th that, that's where the turn comes. The cultural turn is always the key one. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything else after that is just, is predictable. You know, someone should just, someone, the, the, the Singaporean embassy in South Africa should, <laughs> should have a contest. <laughs> so we're giving a uh, hundred permanent residency visas to the people of South Africa. It's going to be a lottery. So if you win one, you can you can move to Singapore. Um, see how many people apply for those visas in South Africa. You, you know, my guess is, you know, 30% of the population would apply yeah. for those visas. So in other words, Helen Zeely is right, right? I mean, in other words, what, what you're saying is that, is that if we could have been more like Singapore, the people of South Africa would have been better off and would have been happier. You know, so, so you know, it's, it's just rank hypocrisy to say, you know, we have to stand up to that sort of idea because the people of South Africa, you know, you know, really are happy that we're not mm. a global financial center with an incredibly high standard of living and safe schools for our kids and, and excellent income and ability to travel and whatnot. I mean, it's just, it's, it's rank hypocrisy. And I, and I don't think there's a, 
there's a way to, to um, disempower that until you have a serious conversation um, about the past. I mean, so this is kind of, this is, you know, why this debate matters. We don't really care about, you know, Lord Lugard's amalgamation of Nigeria. I mean, nobody really cares about that in, for its own sake. But what's at stake here is how do you relate to the past of your country? And if you think your past is just a litany of horror, why would you do anything to support it in the present and try and protect and maintain the institutions that you inherited uh, from your colonial past? Why not tear them down? I mean, that's what most African kleptocrats did. Fiascos about statues, which, which I find very strange. I mean, it's a statue. Well, yeah. I mean, in, in medieval times, they used to go dig up the churchyard um, <laughs> when, when there was a plague and you know, someone... Someone, someone's decomposing body was causing the plague, you know, because it mm. cast a spell. I mean, this, and this would kind of play into, you know, contemporary notions of magic and its its sway over the over the contemporary world. So, okay, whatever. I mean, people people will be in public spaces doing crazy things all the time. I'm I'm not I'm not really exercised about statues because I don't really care what statues mm. are in the public space, but I do care uh, that we accept that a democratic system has a constitution yeah. and it has a division of power and has a means of electing rulers and holding them accountable and overseeing that through the freedom of information, the freedom of speech. I mean, that's what, that's the statue I care about. Um, and that's the one that is in danger here. Do you think there's a little bit of uh, Steven Pinker's noble savage coming through that uh, the country, at least, let's say, South Africa, was better off before it was colonized. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, the, the land of milk and honey counterfactual, this is called. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's great if you can get it. I say it's great to say, like, yes, you know, but for you know, this, you know, you know, we would be, uh, we would be Wakanda, you know, who believes this? Right? The Hollywood producers love this, right? This, this is the, I call this the Wakanda fantasy. You know, this is basically, um, and, it, and it's ludicrous. We know it's ludicrous. There, there's no evidence that um, the places that were colonized with very few exceptions, you know, were on track to become anything except a continuation of stone age, pre-modern societies, which, by the way, would have been, you know, uh, conquered by the West one way or another, you know, yeah. with, without colonial rule and with a lot worse consequences, by the way, if it's a bunch of privateers mm. and concession seekers and people with, um, you know, chests full of gin and guns uh, becoming your rulers than an accountable liberal state where reports on you are read every year in parliament and debated mm. and investigations sent out. I mean, what, what do you think is a serious counterfactual here? I mean, there's, and there's no argument that any of these places, I mean, the, the Indians go to heroic attempts to show that, you know, you know, when the East India company came in, you know, uh, and, uh, and the Mughal dynasty had collapsed that in fact, there was this kind of like gelling up of, of kind of a, a decentralized rule. And this would have led to a kind of uh, amazingly dynamic country but you know that the the Shah of Persia uh, mm. basically marched into Delhi and um, announced his arrival by massacring forty five thousand people and started minting coins 
uh, evidence of his intention to colonize India. So the most likely counterfactual to the British in India would have been the Persians. And, uh, and this was a nasty, <laughs> uh, nasty regime. So, you know, th- there is no land, there's no Wakanda. Uh, yeah. There's no, there's no fantasy of this, um, and, and the trajectories all show kind of bad directions. <laughs> As a thought experiment, had Britain not gone to the U.S. and colonized, what would have happened? Do you think? So, so you know, there were multiple groups competing over the American territory. Um, yes. The Russians uh, were already in where I am now. This was Russia. Um, I would, I'd be, a, I would be a Russian speaking to you. Very nice to speak to you. Uh, you know, because this this would have been Russia, and then uh, the Spanish were, of course, in control of, or the Mexicans. Later, the Mexicans were in control of much of the southwest of the United States. Um, you would then have had a, a essentially a slave empire in what's the American South because those would have been plantation colonies run by private companies, kind of like, you know, the Congo Free State of the United States, you know, the, the free state of the southern United States. Um, and then you would have had these um, essentially um, uh, religious sects uh, colonizing what is now the northeast of the United States. I mean, that's what the, the, the people fleeing, you know, uh, going to the United States for religious reasons. So the, the, the pilgrims and the Anabaptists and the and the Brownists and all these people who came aboard the Mayflower and after, you know, would have created these little theocracies. Um, so you would have had Russians, uh, Spanish Cadillos, uh, slave empires and theocracies uh, in what is now the United States. Now, I don't think there's any plausible argument that that would have made these this this country a better governed and more prosperous place than it no. is as a result of British colonialism. No, it sounds magical. Sounds like Wakanda. <laughs> Sounds um, like Wakanda. Uh, what do you think might have happened in South Africa were it not for the Europeans landing? Large, large parts of Africa and mm. in South Asia too, where they still don't use the wheel. By the way, <laughs> wow. I mean, they, they still carry things on their heads. I mean, you know, just because, and, and this this is just more like kind of a kind of kind of locking effects of cultural practices that mm. just it, and with without economic development, you know, they're not using the wheel. I mean, the wheel. Um, so. Yeah, so, so all, all of South Africa is a great thought experiment, right? I mean, who, who would have pushed in there? I mean, we knew the Bantu groups were pushing in. You know, would, would the Buganda have kept marching? And I mean, the Buganda had enslaved, you know, 11 tribes in what became Uganda by the time the British came in and established a protectorate. So, you know, probably some, something like the, the Sokoto Caliphate, but of Southern Africa. So a kind of slave state with uh, hereditary rulers of some sort. But again, you know, the West is coming, whether you like it or not, because the West is powerful, technologically advanced, seafaring. It has massive degrees of, of capital and manpower and organizational skills. And most important, again, when it shows up, it will be welcomed. Whether your cultural elites like it or not, it will be welcomed because it will offer jobs, security, alliances, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So, mm. so there is no counterfactual where South Africa is not absorbed into some rival kingdoms, African and European. So how do you want that encounter to go? I mean, would you not prefer it to go through the establishment of a single protectorate by a relatively, and in South Africa's case, the single most liberal, well-governed state in the world at the time? I mean, Mm. I'll volunteer for that. But I mean, a lot of the narrative 
in the media particularly uh, would would argue that most of Africa is a dump because of colonialism. Yeah, well, it's just it's it's flatly contradicted by the evidence because whatever indicator you use, you know, and you look at look at life expectancy, food production, um, you know, disease burden, economic development, trends were going upward very well in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, right? I mean, as independence was getting closer. But, you know, in the 50s and 60s, most colonial officials said, you know, maybe by the end of the century, you know, we'll be ready. I mean, that, that's what they thought. And they were probably right, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, that, it, you know, that colonial rule needed to last longer than it did. The moment you have decolonization, the trends go down. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so in part, this is because colonial officials left. Um, but for the most part, it's because these societies were unable and unwilling to maintain the colonial inheritance that they had that they had taken on with a few exceptions. Singapore being, you know, the great example of, you know, uh, strong continuity between the colonial and post-colonial period, uh, to some extent, Malaysia as well. Um, and, you know, one one maybe would look at, at Botswana. I mean, I, I, I don't know. There's there's maybe a few exceptions, not many in Africa, where at least there was a stronger attempt to maintain the civil service traditions, the the the, the apolitical military. Uh, so basically, it's exactly the opposite. The, the, the more intensive mm. and the more continuity there was between a country and its colonial past, the better off it was. Right. The more you had some lunatic show up, like Amrakal Cabral, Cabral in Guinea-Bissau, who said the main task is to tear down and destroy the colonial state, well, you had just a massive human disaster. I mean, a, a quarter of the population fled to Senegal, and another quarter got murdered in his constant political infighting. How is that, how is that the legacy of colonialism? That's the mm. legacy of anti-colonialism. Well, were it not for colonialism, Afrikaners wouldn't exist. Yeah, and Nigerians wouldn't exist, and Kenyans wouldn't exist, and Botswanans wouldn't exist, and Namibians wouldn't exist. Of course, um, you know this is why when I wrote when I wrote that article on Chinua Kebe, uh, it was called Chinua Kebe on the positive legacies of colonialism. And you know, Akebe was a uh, was a complex thinker. Uh, yes, he thought that some things had been you know, education had not been done well, and the governance systems were not as uh, as sensitive to local systems as they should have been, but but his basic his basic takeaway was, hey, colonialism is is modernity. It's like how you move into the modern world. It is how you face up to the fact that the modern world is upon you. And um, and one of the good things it does is it creates a, a, a border within which you need to reinvent your society along modern lines, not along you know ethnic or identity lines. And uh, and he was very clear, you know, this is the great inheritance of British colonialism that we as Nigerians have is this thing called Nigeria. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and there's there's no plausible pathway. And people say, oh, the colonialists made these artificial boundaries. Right. This is the classic one. you know. <laughs> and these like did violence. Well, artificial boundaries were the best thing that ever happened to Africa because artificial boundaries were what created the impetus for mm -hmm. a civic republic instead of a tribal republic. And the fact is that ethnically homogenous countries have not done better than ethnically mixed ones. Just look at South Sudan. I mean, this was supposed to be the solution to the terrible colonial boundaries. So we're going to carve out this 
this mm. little ethnic enclave, and that's going to solve the problem of artificial boundaries. Well, it, it took like six months before South Sudan was in a civil war. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so the artificial boundaries argument is, is ludicrous. And, and I would say, you know, someone like Camille Lefebvre, who's at the French National um, uh, Science Research Institute, you know, has made this argument, especially with respect to French colonies, is, you know, the artificial boundaries were critical to the creation of a civic nation and, and a mm. productive encounter with modernity. Colonialism, just another word for plundering resources, i.e. the ivory out of Tanzania by the British. Um, yeah, was was there ivory theft under colonialism? Yes. Uh, did that more or less define colonialism's economic impact? No. So, you know, here you have to just kind of look at the research that's been done. And I mean, not the not the Rodney, you know, not not the sort of colonialism and underdevelopment in Africa propaganda, but but economists mm. who look at the colonialism variable and economic development. And the evidence is very clear. You know, the more the longer and more intensely you were colonized, the higher your income per capita, the more wealth you had in your society, the fairer was the distribution of wealth, the higher the wages, the better the household living standards were. I mean, the evidence is is irrefutable. And um, and so this is just like uh, we have this problem of wanting to pile a lot of kind of negative emotions on this word colonialism. And maybe we just need to find another word for that, like like misgovernance episodes. <laughs> but colonialism as a whole, no way. I mean, the evidence is clear. You know, the best thing for your economy, for your living standards, for your children's ability to survive, for your ability to survive and live into old age was to have been colonized for longer and more intensely. But has colonialism always been uh, violent? And I think that's what people think about. They, they always think of bloodshed. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, there were, uh, when, when we look at the numbers in terms of, you know, number of colonial officials on the ground, I mean, vanishingly small. You know, People in African countries and also in um, South Asia, uh, even in the Caribbean, you know, they, they might have lived under colonial rule their whole life and never seen a single colonial official mm. because virtually all of the governing was done by natives. Um, why? Because uh, there's no way these, these countries support massive civil services in these mm. colonies. They had, it had to be done by the natives. The natives are the ones who 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 ran the systems. Um, I mean, there's there's all the funny stories about you know colonial officials showing up, you know, in a place that's been colony for a hundred years, and people yeah. saying, you know, what the, what the heck is that? It's like, well, that's actually the district officer, um, you know. But um, so so no, this you know force. I mean, where's the force? Uh, you know, the, the it's the cooperation and the acceptance of colonial rule through treaties through um, alliances, uh, mm. just through straightforward legitimacy, popular legitimacy and support. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what defined the expansion of colonialism. You know, were there wars? Yes. Most of those wars, I would say, were largely legitimate counterinsurgency operations. And I can, we can go through case after case, but, you know, we have to understand that when you are establishing your rule in a territory, there's going to be opposition. Yes. And that opposition will be motivated mainly by an attempt to preserve power and prerogatives that are being stripped, such as the prerogative to steal your neighbor's wife and the prerogative to enslave another, another tribe and the prerogative to burn another village and steal their land. Well, yes, colonialism said no. 
to that sort of thing. And when groups resisted, engaged in counterinsurgency. And, and we can go through, you know, one, the Maji Maji, the Mau Mau, um, you know, these are all examples. What happened in northern Nigeria? This this is how colonialism spread. But w was this kind of oppression and exploitation? No, I'd say this is this is a just war and a just counterinsurgency. This is fighting the Taliban and bringing a more liberal system. The accusation that you that you're making colonialism sound magical and amazing. And you know, in my article, I looked at Guinea-Bissau, and the reason I did that is, first of all, you had a nutcase like Amakal Cabral who became the president and tore the place to shreds. So it is like, okay, maybe not as representative of every African country, but, you know, it's a bit extreme in terms of how disastrous post-colonialism was. But what I was interested in is the Portuguese get a bad rap, right? It's easy for me to defend British colonialism. And, you know, in, in political science, when we do these kind of historical statistical studies, people always say, uh, well, you have to, you have to know whether the country you're studying was a British colony because I mean, to put in what's called a dummy variable, because we all know that, of course, being a British colony was going to be good for whatever you're studying. Right. And it's so kind of entrenched in our knowledge that we don't even pay attention to it anymore. You know, and it's just it's just it's just true that the British colonial variable always ends up generating a positive coefficient. I don't want to talk about statistics, but basically it's always the case that being a British colony made you better off. Okay, so that itself is important because British colonialism accounted for roughly 67, 70% of the people years of colonialism, you know, in the modern era, mainly because of India. So saying that British colonialism is basically a good thing is to say that colonialism as a whole, to the extent you can generalize, was a good thing because the British part was good, right? But okay, let's just, let's think about other countries I chose Guinea-Bissau because the Portuguese get a bad rap. But, you know, the Portuguese went into places which were not colonized by others precisely because they were in the most difficult places, right? Mm. They were they were poverty and tribal and they were infected with all kinds of disease burdens and lacked in harbors and minerals and all the things that, that made the other places get gobbled up. So relative to what would have happened in the Portuguese places, and Guinea-Bissau is a great example, the Portuguese, yeah, they, they made miracles. And I don't want to say this miracles in terms of they, they, these, these officers did some superhuman thing, but it's just a fact that when a society that is advanced and industrialized and relatively well-governed and liberal for the time, okay, remember for the time, uh, is able to extend its governance system to a country that is not any of those things, it's just logically true that mm. unless some something truly bizarre happens, like they send some evil genius as the governor like three times in a row, yes, that society is going to be better off. And the Guinea-Bissau evidence is very clear on that. And, and so what we see in colonial rule is, you know, colonialism, colonial centers, colonialism was basically often just in cities, right? It was the centers and, and the periphery was kind of untouched. That's why I say a lot of these people had never seen a colonial official. They didn't even know they were part of colonies because life just carried on. And so those people in the mud huts were we're perfectly able to and allowed to remain in essentially untouched life. But massive migration into centers of more intense colonial rule. People voted with their feet. So, yes, it's very nice for the kind of Western intellectuals sitting in their universities saying, oh, modernity was so terrible and it destroyed our oral folk traditions. OK, well, that's great. You you go live that yourself. But 
give people a choice. And when people have been given a choice, they vote with their feet and they moved closer to colonial areas, more intense colonial areas. And it's true actually also in North America, many of these, uh, many First Nations groups in Canada and Native American groups, you know, what they claim today as their traditional homelands, they, they migrated there after the Europeans. They moved to be closer to the Europeans. Uh, the entire Huron tribes in Southern Ontario, you know, moved from what's now Manitoba and the, and the Canadian mm. Shield down into Southern Ontario after the British arrived because they wanted to be closer because the, the British had doctors British had stable food sources. The British could uh, trade the food for the things they were able to acquire. The British gave them security. And you're darn right, if you were a woman, you definitely wanted to be closer to the yeah. areas of intensive colonial. So, so yeah, I have no problem someone deciding to stay in their mud hut. But, but the evidence is people didn't like to stay in their mud huts. They wanted running water. Mm. They wanted food security. Um, and if you were a woman in particular, you'd be much happier to be in a center of an intense colonization. Uh, what would Dr. Gilly cite as an example of colonialism where life was worse off for the natives? And why was it like that? In brackets, Congo free state, perhaps. What makes this different? Okay, so colonialism 101, Congo free state was not a colony. It was a private fiefdom of King Leopold II. And it's an enormously important point to keep in mind. Mm. It became a colony after the Belgian government took over the Free State in 1908. And actually, the only time the Congo was a successful, stable, and flourishing place was when it was actually a Belgian colony, 1908 until whenever independence was, 1960-something, maybe. Um, so why? Do, so here's, here's a point. Why do people constantly say that the Congo Free State was a colony when it wasn't. It's an important thing. And it's not just it's not just semantics. It's not just, you know, whose mm. whose seal was on the thing. It lacked all of the accountability mechanisms through which colonialism operated. Namely, the central government had accountability mechanisms over those it sent out. Information was shared, reports, commissions, study groups. None of that happened in the Congo Free State because it wasn't a colony. Mm. I mean the Congo Free State is the best advertisement for colonialism ever because it shows what the most likely alternative to colonialism was, which was basically a, a free concession-seeking kind of um, Yahoo place um, mm. that resulted in a lot of atrocities. Now, I would actually say, you know, you know, the Congo Free State also needs to be compared to be what would have happened there absent King Leopold II. And then you have to look at Tipo Tip and Zuber Matir, who were in the other parts of the Congo, and ask yourself whether people migrated into the Congo Free State away from Tipo Tip, and they did, by the way, because atrocious as it is, Leopold II's Congo Free State was better off. People felt better off than they did in the other parts run by basically, you know, uh, Eastern African and, and Muslim slave mm -hmm. traders. So yeah, it's all it, relative to what, but the key point being colonialism because it established a formal accountability mechanism between the home state and the colony is precisely what prevented atrocities like what happened in the Congo Free State. And the Congo Free State is, is the advertisement for colonialism. That's why it was mm. handed over to the Belgians. Is colonialism still occurring? And will it still occur if it is still occurring, do you think? So no, it's not still occurring. And I think it's important conceptually to state that 
you know, when we talk about colonialism, we mean something very specific and historically embedded in the sense of it is when a share or the entirety of sovereignty over place B is in the hands of place A, right? And I mean formal sovereign power. So China, the most recent example of colonization is China taking over Hong Kong, right? Why? Yes. Because China literally became the sovereign in Hong Kong in 1997. It replaced British sovereignty with Chinese sovereignty. It went from being a British colony to a Chinese colony, okay? So that, that idea of sovereignty is very important. It can't just be because I have a lot of investments there or because you know, we have a defense pact or because I'm sending a lot of you know, workers there that this is colonialism because we have to be very careful with that slipperiness. Uh, you can call that what you will, um, globalization, you know, international economic integration, um, the political economy of, of diplomacy, but it's not colonialism. Colonialism involves sovereignty, the ability to hold a share of the political power over another place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for the most part, that has disappeared because we are in a, we're in a, a nation state system now. Uh, there have been these instances in Africa of you know, sovereignty, so-called sovereignty sharing arrangements, um, you know, whether that was the British going in and reforming the Sierra Leone police force, uh, where they actually were given, you know, authority over the police force while they rebuilt it, or uh, the World Bank sequestering Chad's offshore gas revenues in a special fund held by the World Bank, right? So the World Bank and and the consortium there essentially, essentially took sovereign power from the Department of Finance of Chad and held it. So that was, you know, that's colonialism. And I yeah. say in my article, we should call that colonialism because that's what it is, right? That's sovereignty. But other forms of international influence between nations, that's just international influence. That's that's not colonial. I think we, we do a disservice both to the contemporary reality as well as to the past by calling that colonialism. Right. I define decolonization today because the historically specific decolonization which is the process of going from being a formal colony to being an independent nation state that process is finished right so there is no more room for decolonization unless we're going to talk about places that you know don't want to be part of a nation state anymore and consider that they became part of that nation state through a colonial process so you know, Tibet, uh, maybe Hong Kong, uh, you know, it's an interesting struggle. But for the most part, that decolonization process is over. So what it, what it has become now is this transference of the concept of decolonize towards this idea that, well, we've got our sovereignty back, mm. but we don't have our political power back because our political power is stuck in these democratic institutions which are prohibiting us from making use of our political power in whatever way we see fit. So decolonize now is an attempt through undemocratic means to seize political power from existing systems of a liberal society. It is uh, a form of coup. If it you sounds postmodern. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way of basically seizing power. It's, it's a mm. power grab. Decolonize today is a power grab. 
And actually, it's interesting because if you then kind of backcast that to the actual decolonization process, it turns out that a lot of decolonization processes were a power grab as well. Um, I mean, many people in these societies, and I think this, this history is starting to come back, you know, they didn't want to be decolonized at all. Um, you know, in, in the Congo, I mean, you've got to read David Van Rebrook's book, Congo, an Epic History. It is, it's an epic book. And, you know, he really documents how the, the various groups and, and peoples in the Congo were, were dead against decolonization, right? And uh, the, the great king of central Congo said, you know, this is a bunch of loudmouth minorities who want to decolonize. Don't give in to them, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Belgians were exhausted. They'd gone through wars. They were, they were tired. They came to Brussels. They had a conference. They said, right, it's up to you. Um, so this was an undemocratic seizure of power, even at the time of actual decolonization. And I think that sort of undemocratic bug in the decolonization ethos has continued right to the present. So now we want to decolonize, what, the curriculum? Or yeah. decolonize the national radio station. So what does that mean? It, it means that a small, loudmouth minority gets to abuse and discard the procedures of liberal society and seize power, all the while claiming some moral high ground. Well, that's that's authoritarianism, right? And mm. we've seen that mistake so many times. So just put it in the box with other forms of Leninist authoritarian seizures of power. That's where it belongs, and that's why mm. it needs to be fought. Human history is the history of racism, uh, if you want yeah. to call it that. Human human history is the history of groups for for solidarity reasons and protection reasons, mm-hmm. developing stories about their internal cohesiveness and their separateness from others. Okay, that that is human history and human history until very recently. And what's interesting is, so who ended that human history? Who overcame racism? Right? Which civilization developed norms and ideas and ethics that said, you know? We need to think about the universal equality of men. Was it was it the Qing Empire in China? No. Was it was it the Maharajas in India who promoted this idea? No. Was it the 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 Sokoto Caliphate in uh, in northern Nigeria? No. It was, it was Western civilization was the that yeah. defeated racism, right? And and now guess which civilization is charged with racist history? The West. The West um, yes. Again, it's kind of flattering, but it, but it's completely anachronistic. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you for your service to uh, free and open debate. My name is Jim. This was Jim Wolfe, The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.